What is up, people? Welcome back to King Pilled. Today, you've just got me. It's just me. Our good boy Cooper is down with the AIDS. If you guys could uh, could say a prayer for the poor fellow. He was doing just fine this afternoon, and then I hit him up to uh, confirm our time going live. And he has a fever. He took a little nap this afternoon, woke up with a fever. Um, <clears throat> it doesn't seem like, seem like he's feeling super well. So it's just me for tonight, which is okay because I actually have, uh, a lot of content for us to go through and it's probably going to work better as just a solo show. We've got, uh, we're going to do a deep dive on naive Bukele today. This is one of my favorite people in the world right now. I've had a lot of fun, uh, getting to know him, shall we say, uh, through researching, watching some of his interviews, researching some of his, uh, uh, some of his doings. And I've realized that I knew a decent amount about him, but I actually didn't know very much about how he came to power, the different uh, different machinations and stuff that required uh, that he required to get into power. And uh, the background of his story is fairly interesting. I think there's a lot that we can learn from it, even just purely from, an, from a fascination with the historical perspective and treating it as kind of like a, um, like a historical deep dive in a significant historical figure. Because I think at this point, even, I mean, any any sort of event that would leave him uh, no longer uh, a significant figure on the historical fa uh, historical stage would itself be a pretty significant event and make him a significant figure. So I think at this point, he is very clearly one of the most important people of the modern time. Uh, and there's a lot that we can learn both from, uh, again, just from a normal historical perspective. And in particular, I think that what we're seeing is a model being set up that is going to have uh, aspects of it that are potentially du duplicable. So if we, uh, if we start from that perspective, then uh, there's something we can learn in terms of what to expect with the way things are going and uh, how we can position ourselves to take advantage of that. Uh, we've obviously talked a lot here about the PayPal mafia, and I've had a number of conversations recently with some other people talking about the PayPal mafia. Uh, I went on uh, Pete Quinones' show. If you're a listener to Pete Quinones, uh, you probably already heard it. If you're not, go check it out. It's on YouTube and uh, and all the podcatchers. Uh, Pete's a good guy, a great friend. Uh, it was good to get back and talk to him. And uh, we've stayed in touch since then. We've been, been talking about some of these issues and how they're going to play out. Um, so that's one. Uh, we also, Cooper and I both went on The Prudentialist on his stream. He was on here on the channel a couple weeks back, had a great conversation. We went on to his channel and we talked about the PayPal Mafia. And then uh, we had Charles Haywood on the last episode here on the show. If you haven't watched or listened to that one, go back and listen to it. Uh, another very good conversation. We touched on the PayPal Mafia a little bit. And we talked to him a little bit afterwards as well. Um, kind of got his read on the situation. And then uh, what was the other thing? Uh, Prudentialist, Pete, uh, PayPal Mafia, Haywood. I think that was all. Uh, oh, the one other thing I was going to say is our good friend 2-Bit Podcast is going to be hosting a PayPal Mafia friend or fed. Uh, the date now just has just slipped my mind. Let me look it up here real quick. Um, this is going to be the beginning of March, and I'm going to be there. Uh, I'm waiting for to see if 2-Bit if, if is listening along here and can uh, just chime in with the time. Uh, da, 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 da. at the very least you guys can be on the lookout for it now that you know that it's coming uh i want to say march 1st and if that's the case that would be perfect uh, march 1st uh paypal mafia yes march 1st he says so we'll be doing paypal mafia uh friend or fed on march 1st 
Uh, we've got some very interesting guests already confirmed. I'll let him drop them in the chat if he would like to. 5 p.m. Eastern time it'll be. Uh, you can you can drip the the, the guests if you want to bit, or I will uh, just tease it. Some very good guys that you're definitely going to want to hear from. We'll have a great panel. And uh, we got a couple other uh, invites out to get a couple other uh, pretty interesting guys. So, 2-Bit Podcast, Friend or Fed, March 5th, March 1st, first day of March, 5 p.m. Eastern, PayPal Mafia, Friend or Fed. Uh, if this is your first time watching, welcome. Uh, please, uh, we're streaming live on, on, on Twitter, on YouTube, and on Facebook. So if you're watching us on one of those, make sure you go follow us on the other platforms. On Twitter, we're at Real Kingpilled. And then uh, you can follow Cooper, too. He doesn't tweet at all, but at Cooper Brooks. Uh, and then uh, we're also on all the different podcatchers that I know of, all the significant ones people use. Uh, you can catch the audio version of the podcast there. Today, we're going to do a video uh, for part of it. I'm going to show you guys a, a speech that Bukele gave um, after his recent uh, victory. And it is the speech is in Spanish. Obviously, he's giving it into El Salvador. Um, and there's English captions on it. But for our audio listeners, I'm just going to read them along. It'll kind of disrupt the experience of watching the video. But if you want to watch the whole video uh, without my voice talking over it, then uh, you're welcome to go do that. Actually, I would highly recommend it. It's something, I think it's like a 25 or 30 minute speech and uh, pretty clearly just off the cuff. And this is, we're, we'll, we'll get into it, but this is, this is just, this is next level true statesman stuff. Um, so I think that's, that's, that's a big deal. Like we, we haven't seen a true state, statesman like this in a very long time. What's up everybody in the chat? Uh, Sanji Vinsmoke says, isn't he reelected? What makes him stand out? That's a very good question. There's, there's a number of things that are gonna make him stand out. Um, him getting reelected itself was uh, something that stands out as you guys will see as we get into it. Uh, before I do that though, I just happened to see just before I went live here, um, I just happened to get this tweet that I wanted to share with you guys. So this will kind of relay, this sort of sets up the, the conversation we're gonna have here. So let me share my screen. Shout out to Revenant on Twitter. Um, I think I think we're mutuals, are we? Yeah, we are. Uh, Revenant, <clears throat> Revenant underscore MMXX, or uh, what is that, 2020 in, in uh, Roman numerals. Revenant underscore MMXX says, I won't give you guys the rest of the context, just people talking about Bukele and everything, but or sorry, um, uh, Millet, Javier Millet in Argentina. He says, so are we supposed to hate Millet now because he said some Zio cringe? That's like every politician. If I have to choose between standard Zio cringe and Zio cringe that shutters entire government agencies, then I'm choosing the latter. And to which, and this here, I, I put some of my thoughts into it already. Um, uh, so I'll just share those. Uh, a good friend, 2-Bit Podcast said, I've said that Millet, Bukele, and a few others are part of the build a Caesar trend. All they have to do is succeed in one area or a policy to start the political mimetic trend that will stack. So that's the first thing. Build a Caesar. Get this idea in your head because it seems very clear this is what we're seeing. And even if it isn't necessarily an intentional thing, it works because all you have to do with each of these guys is they just have to, they don't have to be full Caesar. They just have to demonstrate how to be Caesar on one particular issue. And then they serve as a model for that issue. And the more models like this we accumulate, the more each individual Caesar-like character will begin acting like Caesar across a, a range of domains. And if this is your first time watching and you don't understand why we want a Caesar, we've got a whole corpus of videos you can go, go back through. At this point, we're just using Caesar as a shorthand for uh, an autocratic leader. 
who uh, who steps in and does away with corruption and restores us back toward at least directionally toward some semblance of competent governance. So that's the first point. This is my thoughts on it. I said, I'm not exaggerating when I say I think this is the most important tweet that's ever been tweeted. Print it off and staple it to the insides of your eyelids. Specifically the phrase, if I have to choose between standard Ziocringe and Ziocringe that shutters entire government agencies, I'm choosing the latter. This is a thing that, it's funny, this was a, one of the observations that broke me out of, away from the ANCAP libertarian mindset that I used to have. There is, there's this tendency among uh, lib-brained people like us who see a political choice and they say, well, this political choice between these two options, this is a false choice. I don't like either of these options and neither of these options is acceptable to me. So I'm going to I'm going to, to choose option three, which is abstaining from participating. Now, if you want to, whatever, voting, not voting, whatever, I don't care. It, if you're tweeting and you're, especially if you have a, a following, if you've got a lot of people listening to you, if you're contributing to the conversation about political decision-making and political action and these sorts of things, you're involved in politics. If you're someone who, if you're one of these anarchists who tweets constantly about how politics is stupid and we shouldn't be involved in politics and voting is dumb and all of this stuff, you're engaged in politics. The choice not to vote is a vote. So if you induce someone into not voting, you're participating in the election. Even if you're saying don't vote for any of them, you're still participating in the election and you're still making a choice, except you're allowing your choice to be controlled by the choices that are presented to you. Yes, it's a forced choice when you have this this guy or this guy in like a standard two-party system. Yes, it's a forced choice. However, generally, one of these is clearly better than the other. And option three doesn't actually exist because option three is supposed to be something like, well, if I abstain, then maybe enough people will abstain and we'll get none of them. But there's nobody ever makes the case as to why none of them would somehow be better. Like, you want to game that out for me? The fact of the matter is it's going to be one of them. So you can deal with the facts on the ground that exist in front of you right now and talk about the pros and cons of either one, or you can abstain entirely, which is fine, but just don't deceive yourself into thinking that abstaining entirely is somehow um, transcending the choice. It's just the unspoken third choice that happens to be the least effective with respect to the political system itself. If you're going to abstain completely, and you're just going to go like head down, I'm going to grind, I'm just going to start building stuff, I don't care what else is happening out, out there, I'm just going to take care of my family. Great, that's awesome. But as soon as you come in and you start talking about it, especially public and especially if you have a large audience, you're now involved. So you can't be like be involved and not involved at the same time. You're signing up to be involved. That's just part of how politics works right now in this current age. If you post on Twitter about politics, you're participating in the political process. If you post about how anti-democratic you are and how opposed to democracy you are, you're participating in a democratic process because this is the reality of the facts on the ground around us. And we started doing kingpilled back in the day, making fun of libertarians for doing this. With, oh, I don't like either option, statist. But that's all that when you get, in it, you just got like the upgraded version of it now where it's like, oh, well, both of the options are Zionists. So none of the above. All you're doing is you're just saying, well, he's not libertarian enough. One of the options is going to be the option. So let's game out. If this one happens, if we get this option, then what do things look like? If we get this option, what do things look like? There's no third option. It's just these two. 
Which which world do you prefer between those two? If neither one, okay, great, whatever. I think it's very clear. The example I like to use is Ron DeSantis and Andrew Gillum. Ron DeSantis won by like, I don't know, 30,000 votes. Imagine if Florida, instead of being under Ron DeSantis throughout COVID, was under a uh, a black gay cokehead version of, well, I don't even, probably don't even need to add the cokehead, the black and gay version of Gavin Newsom. Imagine what Florida would have looked like. And by extension, imagine what, without Florida serving as like the red, um, uh, uh, like line in the sand, like the thing that's the, the, the limit case that's dictating all the others. I mean, as soon as Ron DeSantis started doing stuff, Greg Abbott started following suit. And there was other Republican governors who, with the cover of DeSantis taking all that cover fire, were free to loosen things up and, and, and relate to the, the whole COVID thing differently than, than you know, your normal blue state. But imagine if, if you hadn't had Ron DeSantis there. And instead, you'd had not just not Ron DeSantis, not even like a Republican squish, if you would have had Gavin Newsom there. That would have been the alternative. So clearly, some of these options are better than other options. I said, at this point, all variants of he's a Jew, he's black, he's a Zionist, he's a Pajit, etc., are just right-wing variants of he's not a real libertarian, but perhaps even more retarded given their typical source. This is coming from guys who should know better. This is coming from guys who should understand the reality of the political system. You should have some, some grasp of real politique and recognize just because a dude is a Zionist, just because he went and kissed the wall, I don't, I don't care what's inside his head. I don't care if he kissed the wall because he meant it or if he kissed the wall because he's going to bend the knee to Jews all of the time. I don't care. What I care about is what he actually does. In this case with Malay, he slashed the federal government by a massive degree. I don't even care to what extent he did. All I care about is what the narrative is. Because the narrative is what moves the needle. If Javier Malay stands as an example of a right-wing leader who comes to power talking about free markets and slashes the federal government like crazy and restores aspects of the housing market, or I don't remember everything that he did. I don't even care. He serves now as a model for new people who come in and say, I'm going to be like Malay. This moves the needle in our direction. You can't let the, the perfect be the enemy of the good. Because if you don't cut off your nose to spite your face, what other pithy aphorisms do you want to throw in here? We have to take advantage of half measures that are at our disposal as we build the full measure. When, you're, when, you're, when you go to war with the half measures because they're not full measures, then you get no measures. And I'd rather have half measures than no measures. Because I'm also not looking at any of these individual people as, oh, he's the guy, we get him into place and, and all is well. This is like a, I don't know, a fundamental kind of right-wing conservative impulse where it's like we need to somehow engineer the perfect system that will then run unsupervised. And it's never going to run unsupervised. It's always going to have to be supervised. The problem is you need to have competent people who share your values who are in charge of supervising it. And this is what right-wing people have been very bad at doing, actually maintaining their people in power. They tend to cry when they start realizing that there's people who fight dirty and don't play fair and they cheat the rules and they use the system against them and they're not just they're not just honorably upholding the rules of the system. Well, of course not. Like, were you born last month? This is the story of all of human history. People are going to come in and they're going to try to subvert it and they're going to try to use the system against you for their own purposes. 
take that for granted and build accordingly. So that was the first thing. That's the, that's the lead into the conversation here because you might say, well, is there any example of something like this? Is there any example of that happening? And I'll tell you, there are examples. Road Soda here says in the chat, problem for America is that Zionism is actively harming our country. This is realpolitik. Yes, Zionism is actively harming our country. So if you have the choice between the Zionist and the Zionist who also does things that Zionists hate, then take the Zionist that does things that Zionists hate. That's not the end point. It's not like, oh, we get him and all is saved. And now we just need to duplicate him over and over and over and over and over again. Get him. Have him come and slash a bunch of shit and then position another person to take over and do more and build on whatever he did. Maybe now we get a half Zionist. Next time, maybe we get a quarter Zionist and then an eighth Zionist. The problem is you get way too many people who want to go look for the one drop that says, oh, no, 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 no. He's a 99th Zionist. We can't take him. We can't take advantage of him which is ultimately just impotent signaling. It's like, we don't have the power to control this guy when he goes off the reservation. So we just have to have no guy. Then we don't have to be responsible for taking care of, for, for controlling an asset of ours. This is the mentality of people that don't know anything about owning assets. They're just concerned about liabilities. They can't take advantage of a liability that could potentially be used as an asset. So for an example of a guy who's actually doing this type of thing, sharing the screen. Now, like I said, this video um, has English subtitles. I'm gonna have to, to read over it for the sake of, of uh, the audio only listeners. But I do recommend, whether you're watching this now, watching it later, listening to it later, go look up this video. He just posted it on his, his Twitter account. I'm sure if you search for it on YouTube, his uh, his speech um, celebrating his reelection, you'll get it. It's the guy, the one of him standing out on the National Palace balcony, looking very uh, dictatorial, very uh, Caesarian. One thing that's interesting to see is the way he's dressed. Typically, when you see these types of speeches, you see it from a guy who decks himself out in like full like dictator regalia. He's got he's there's some of him where he's wearing like a suit with a sash. He does speeches like that. But he doesn't come out dressed as like some military warlord, probably in part because he's sending a message enough as it is. That would be that would be even more of a message. But it's also because that's not the angle he's taking. He's not coming at this like we're going to militarily overthrow the reigning colonial powers and establish a military dictatorship to rule our people. That's not how he's framing it. He's beating people at their own game. But we'll get into that more. I want to share probably, I think it's probably going to be around 10 minutes of this video, and I'll, we'll be able to just kind of let it go through most of the way. I'm not going to play the whole thing, obviously, because um, then I have something that I want to read you guys that will go into more detail about some of the stuff he talks about in here. And there's a couple things in here that I want to highlight as well. Um, so I'm going to try to play around with the volume a little bit just so you guys can hear over me. And because it's kind of a loud video, it's a Central American crowd. They, uh, they If you've ever watched a soccer match, they know how to make noise. So let's, let's get started here. Oh, and it, it's sped up because I want to make sure it doesn't take us the full 10 minutes to get through it. So this is at one and a half X. If that sucks for you guys, I'm sorry. Um, you can uh, you can slow down. Uh, you're, if you're listening to this on 2X later, you can just slow it down. Um, no, YouTube, I'm not going to insert ads right now. 
So yeah, so that's why it sounds a little funny. See what I mean with his what he's what he's wearing? He's just wearing a pair of jeans and he's got the uh, kind of like the light sweater. Just he basically looks kind of like a VC bro, which I mean is probably pretty appropriate. All right, so there you get the sense of the crowd. They're putting on quite a scene here. All right, then the audio goes wonky for a minute. Thank you, El Salvador. You should know that. Today, today, El Salvador has broken all the records. Today, El Salvador has broken all the records of all the democracies in the history of the world. Notice, notice as we go through here, the way he talks about democracy, because that's one of the things I want to highlight. We're seeing a trend in the way that democracy is being used. It's being reframed. You might say, as Nick Land might say, it's being re-territorialized. In the history of the world, since the dawn of democracy, no political project had ever won by the number of votes that we won with today. He won, there's like 87% of votes. It's literally the greatest landslide in history. It's the greatest difference between first and second place in all of history. And we haven't just won the presidency for the second time, more on that in a minute, receiving over 85% of the votes. We've also won the legislative assembly. Taking 58 out of 60 seats. At the very least, now the crowd's chanting, yes, we did, yes, we did. Of course we did. 58 out of 60, at the very least. Likely more. I don't know what that means. This would be the first time that there is a single ruling party in a fully democratic system. All of the opposition, all together, has been pulverized. Again, he's talking about democracy here. So he's talking very seriously about what democracy is. He's, 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 this is a, a massive accomplishment in the, the history of democracy. It's a two-party system being completely dominated and ruled by a single party, and the opposition being completely pulverized. This is democracy. El Salvador has made history again today. 
In 2019, we overcame the two-party system that had kept us subjugated, and we turned the page. We ended the post-war period. But it wasn't easy to govern. Remember how we had to fight with the legislative assembly then? They wouldn't let us do anything good for the people. More on that. In 2021, you gave us not just a simple majority, which they said would be impossible, you voted in a two-thirds majority in the legislative assembly. We're going to go through these details more later. And then we were able, the Salvadorian people and their elected representatives were able to remove the previous constitutional court, remove the previous attorney general, and pass the measures that we needed for the territorial control plan. More on that later. And then, in March of 2022, they passed the state of exception. More on that later. Some say, some of those people who don't live in our country, who have never visited El Salvador, not even to make a connection at the airport, they say that Salvadorans are oppressed. They say that Salvadorans don't like the state of exception. The Salvadorans are live in fear of their government. And I want to tell the journalists who are here with us tonight, here in total freedom and security, here in the safest country in the entire Western Hemisphere, don't take my word for it. I'm just a politician. I'm just an elected official. Believe the Salvadoran people. Believe what they are telling you. They're telling you here in this public plaza. They told you in all the national and international opinion polls, even the opposition polls. And if you don't believe that, they told you again today in these elections. The Salvadoran people have spoken. And they haven't just spoken loudly and clearly. They have made the clearest statement in the history of democracies around the world. Whoops. Damn it. Notice what he's, who he's directing this at. He's talking to the journalists. He'll mention it here in a little bit again. The journalists, the NGOs, the representative of these, of these uh, Western uh, uh, non-governmental organizations, bureaucracies. Those are the people he's directing his message to, which is sending a signal both to them directly and to his people. These are your enemies. These are the people who we're fighting against. And again, this is all couched in the language of democracy. This is democracy at work. This is the message that he's sending. I kind of jumped us around here. I was trying to pause it, so we we'll, might have to listen to something again. I'm just a politician. I'm just an elected official. Believe the Salvadoran people. So in a democracy that's functioning as it should, the, the, the guy at the top is just an elected official. He's just a politician. The people, the people are the real voice. I'm just a vehicle for the people. They're telling you here in this public plaza, they told you in all the national and social opinion polls, even the opposition polls. If you don't believe that, they told you again today in these elections. We'll get caught up here in a sec. The Salvadoran people have spoken, and they haven't just spoken loudly and clearly. They've made the clearest statement in the history of all democracies around the world. If that doesn't convince you, journalists, if that doesn't convince you, representatives from the NGOs, representatives from the international organizations, the UN, the OAS, if that doesn't convince you, nothing will. Chanting Bukele again. Big thumbs up.
The Salvadoran people have spoken. And what did they say today? The Salvadoran people have said that they want to stay the course. I was talking, I was talking to a Spanish journalist, and my greetings to all the good Spaniards out there, very Trumpian. I was talking to a Spanish journalist from a news outlet. Lo Pais. The Spanish journalist asked, why do you want to dismantle democracy? I answered, what democracy are you referring to? Democracy means the power of the people. Demos and Kratos. That's where the word democracy comes from. Demos and Kratos. Demos means people and Kratos means power. It's the power of the people. Here's the reframing. And if this is what the Salvadoran people want, why should a Spanish journalist come and tell us what Salvadorans can and can't do? What democracy is he talking about? He's talking about the democracy that his bosses in Spain want. But that's not democracy. That's colonialism, imperialism, elite, elitism, plutocracy. Call it whatever you want, but that's not democracy. Because democracy is when Salvadorans decide as Salvadorans how we want to govern ourselves. As Salvadorans, we should choose our own, we choose our own path. Salvadorans want to be friends with everyone. Salvadorans love Spain, Europe, the United States, and all other countries. We love you. We respect you. We don't ask for anything in return. We aren't asking for money. We aren't asking for donations. We aren't asking for international aid. We aren't asking for anything. The only thing we demand is respect. That's it. Respect. We will respect you. We respect your hereditary monarchy. But you must also show us respect. And I referred to my Spanish friend just to cite one example, but this goes for all the countries in the world. El Salvador wants to trade with everyone. El Salvador wants everyone to come and visit. El Salvador is throwing its doors open wide for citizens from all the countries in the world. We want you to visit, to get to know us. We want to be your friends your allies, your partners. But what we will not accept is to be your servants. Damn. And it's not just the fact that this is our right. It is also, we, try, we already tried your recipes for 50 years. And they never worked. The civil war in El Salvador, which officially left over 85,000 Salvadorans dead and displaced over 1.5 million people, was sponsored by two separate powers. And he goes on to talk about the Soviet Union um, and the U.S. not wanting to fight each other on their own territory, so choosing instead to use places like El Salvador to fight their war. Um, that's So we got through about half of the speech there. He, he continues on. There's more really good stuff. Uh, Trey 50 Daniel says, this speech should be studied by every political analyst in America. Yes. But here's the interesting thing. Why is he able to do this? Why is he getting away with this? Why is he not being color revolutioned? Yet, at least. Why is he not being subverted? Why is, why is he allowed to give the finger to the United States so publicly and so politely without facing consequences? I mean, the, the usual characters in the media are clutching their pearls about human rights violations, and they have been for five years just wait until I get into like the actual stuff that he's been doing. How is he possibly getting away with this? You would think we've got this almighty, powerful, imperial government with the most powerful intelligence communities of all time. And yet somehow 
he's being permitted to go along and do all this. Now, the, the, the skeptics and the cynics, the haters and losers, they'll say, oh, well, because he's an op. He's trying to bait us. They're trying to, they're trying to lure us in. They're playing us for suckers. But ah, oh, we're not going to be suckered. We're the smart ones. We know that if something looks good, it's never good. All we can look at it, everything we see is just bad, evil, corrupt, awful, terrible. That's the only thing that exists. This is goonicry. These people are goonics. I don't care if he's our guy. I don't care if he is literally listening to uh, the most uh, uh, like based political consultant of all time, and this is a magic plan to to install, I don't know, whatever you want, a private monarchy or whatever you... I, I don't care if it's actually that. What I care is what this signals, the narrative that's being laid out here. Because even if we have to do all this shit ourselves, even if we don't have friends in high places right now who are operating behind the scenes or even, even enemies of our enemies in high places operating behind the scenes, laying something out. Even if we have to do this whole thing ourselves, even if we have to bootstrap it from the ground up, what we're getting here is a model. A model of someone who can subvert the powers that be effectively and use their own weapons and tools against them. Now, my cat is in here going nuts, so I'm going to go let her out real quick because she's going to drive me crazy. I'll be right back. All right, so just you guys, if you guys don't know the story of all of this, you guys are in for an absolute treat. So this piece here, Bukele's War for Peace, we, we, we stole the title for um, this one for our show today. Um, Bukele's War for Peace, this was published on IM 1776, written by a, a very based Chad named uh, Benjamin Braddock. So Bukele's War for Peace. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read this whole thing to you guys. Like, I, I don't care. This is amazing. This is absolutely phenomenal. We're going to draw a little bit on, on a couple of these points. I'm going to flesh out a little bit of it from uh, just from Wikipedia, because even just the publicly available stuff in Wikipedia is, is fantastic. So I'm just going to read through this now. Bukele's War for Peace by Benjamin Braddock, written February 7, 2024. I mean, this is, this is Kino. This is straight Kino right here. Look at this guy. Helicopters in the background looking clean just looks like a looks like a VC bro who just showed up how El Salvador fought the gangs and won 2019 El Salvador's new president Naive Bukele faces a staggering challenge in office barely a month his country is in international headlines again for decades El Salvador had never made international headlines because of good news this time was no different a Salvadoran mother and father had drowned in the Rio Grande attempting to cross in the United States Immigration activists in the U.S. were using the tragedy to accuse the Trump administration of endangering migrants by pacing the number of asylum seekers being processed at the border. Instead of going along with blaming the U.S. or suggesting that perhaps the U.S. government should send them more aid, as a typical developing world politician would do, the young president had taken the responsibility squarely on his own shoulders. This was five years ago. He would have been 37, 38 at the time. Quote, we can speak blame to any other country, but what about our blame? I mean, what country did they flee? Did they flee the United States? They fled El Salvador. They fled our country. It is our fault. We haven't been able to provide anything. Not a decent job, not a decent school. So think about this. In terms of all the people who want to complain about the existing 
system. Oh, the Zionists, the women, the blacks, the Pajits, the gays. I'm not defending them. I'm saying if they suck so bad, if they're so evil, which I agree they are, then that reflects on us. We're the ones who allowed them to get into the positions of power that they're in. It's our responsibility that they remain in that space. We're the ones. We take the responsibility on ourselves, and that's what suddenly enables us to actually do something about it. This is a really basic, like, personal self-growth hack. This is like what, what your average business coach or life coach or whatever would tell you, because it's true. If you're, if you're outsourcing your locus of control, if you're saying, oh my, it's other people, it's on them, then you have to wait on them to change something before you're going to improve your station. But if you say it's my fault, everything is my fault, no matter what. Jason Stapleton's story, winner's win, is perfect here. Just look it up if you don't know what it is. Winner's win. It's my fault. I'm the one who's responsible for it. And this is a power move, because when you say I'm the one who's responsible for it, that means I'm the one who gets to fix it. It's going to be fixed on my terms. I'm going to decide that. And it turns out this is very compelling rhetorical political framing for a poor, impoverished, crime-ridden country that desperately wants to restore some type of glory to themselves. What was interesting about Bukele's statement was that he could have credibly blamed the U.S. government for his own country's dysfunction. The Carter administration, the Reagan administration, and the Bush senior administration all bore enormous responsibility for the bloody civil war that had dragged on from 1979 to 1992. Many tens of thousands were killed. Others were tortured or disappeared. Over 1 million fled the country. Even today, over 20, over 20% of El Salvador's population lives abroad, mostly in the United States. It was in this diaspora that the gangs were born. There's an interesting little like five-minute interview that Bukele did with Tucker Carlson, um, I think it was two years ago, three years ago, and they talked about immigration. This is when Tucker was still at, at Fox. And the way he approached it was very interesting. Well, I was curious to see like what his English was like. I found an English-speaking interview. I didn't really care what it was about. And, uh, and he speaks English. He's got an accent, but like he sounds like he grew up in the U.S. And when they talked about immigration, he said, this is actually bad for both of us. This, this is bad for your country, and it's bad for my country, too, because people are leaving my country. And the people who are leaving, they're leaving to go make this dangerous journey and negotiate with gangs and navigate and sneak across the board. They're going to do all this stuff. This is dangerous. You could legitimately die or be injured or raped or whatever. So the people who are going to do this, by definition, are bold, risk-taking people, which are the types of people that you want in your country working for your country to improve infrastructure and, and innovate and build within your country. So he said, this is a bad thing. No successful country. This is his, what he said. He said, no successful country is a net exporter of people. Because these people, they leave, they go, they get a job in the U.S., and then they send like remittances back to their family. But that's not, that's not an economy that we can scale. We can't be so dependent on this. We need these people to stay here. We need to give them a reason to stay here. What are they fleeing? They're fleeing crime and lack of, of, of economic opportunity. So these are the things that he says we need to build here. We need to eliminate the crime, and we need to build economic opportunity. So it's, it's like take away the stick and provide the carrot. The typical kid who wound up in a street gang was not irredeemably evil or sociopathic from an early age. More often, they were shy and awkward. Many were deeply traumatized, first by witnessing the atrocities of war at a young age, then by being uprooted from El Salvador and transplanted to the strange multi-ethnic concrete jungles of the U.S. 
Many had also spent years separated from their parents and with their parents typically working long hours just to get by, there was very little time that could be spent with them once they were back together. This was in the generation of Americans that came to be known as latchkey children, dubbed that because as the first generation to have significant percentage of working mothers, they often came home from school to an empty house. As we've talked about this as a characteristic thing about Gen X. <clears throat> Uh, this phenomenon was sharply intensified for the Salvadoran refugees who came here in utter poverty and only had marginal, low-paying jobs available to them. The public schools in L.A. were essentially ghetto daycares, but without having the good sense to segregate by ethnicity. The Salvadoran kids were picked on and beaten up in the schools relentlessly by the Mexicans and the blacks, both of which already had their own ethnic gangs. There was little recourse but to seek safety in numbers. Joining a gang was a way to manage conflict. I'm reminded of Michael Malice's commentary on uh, uh, public schools and prisons being basically indistinguishable from another. And it's funny, we were driving, Amy and I were driving across some smaller town in Texas, and we saw this big building. We were like, what is that? We were like, it kind of looks like a jail. I wonder if it's the jail. And we drove around to the front. It was a middle school. <laughs> so even in Texas, you still like the, 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 the architecture, you can't distinguish the jail from the middle school unless you literally see the sign. Uh, they still had to fight, and often they ended up fighting even more than they had prior to joining, but they no longer had to fight alone. Before they were the MS-13 street gang, they were the Mara Salvatrucha Stoners, a group of Salvadoran youth in 1970s Los Angeles who would hang out to smoke marijuana and listen to heavy metal. What made them distinct from other stoner groups, and then later other street gangs, was that some of the hardcore inner circle members of the clique were also heavy into Satanism, replete with ritualistic animal sacrifice and later, human sacrifice. It was onto these roots that the street gang iteration of MS was grafted onto in the 1980s. At the same time that MSS was transforming into MS, Salvadoran youths were also joining other street gangs like 18th Street, the Rebels, the Harpies, the Crazies, and numerous others. It was likely the competitive presence of these other street gangs that helped drive the transformation of MS from a stoner gang to a street gang. There were other trends at play as well. The cocaine boom was reaching ever greater heights thanks to the work of the Medellin and Cali cartels. Supply had increased so dramatically that wholesale prices collapsed by some 80%. Dealers started making and marketing crack cocaine, which first hit the streets of Los Angeles in 1981. Throughout the decade, black gangs like the Bloods and the Crips and Mexican gangs like Venice 13 and El Oil Maravilla turned vast swaths of Los Angeles into a war zone as they battled for turf. In other words, Los Angeles in the 1980s was the perfect petri dish to grow a metastasizing social cancer like MS-13. And unlike the cartels or some of the organized street gangs, the leadership structure of MS-13 was decentralized and the activities were disorganized. The same international interests who had funded the war and told the Salvadorans that it was in their best interests to fight it, then turned around and said that both sides needed to come to a peace agreement. The result of the peace process was that both sides came together and agreed to hold themselves completely unaccountable for the mass murder, terrorism, disappearances, torture, rape, and mass population displacement that had occurred as a result of their activities in the war. With the war over, the Clinton administration stepped up deportations of undocumented Salvadorans, but failed to inform the Salvadoran government of the criminal offenses which had led to their capture. Thousands of those deported were members of MS-13 and the 18th Street Gang. In short order, members from these gangs connected and the cliques began spreading across El Salvador, recruiting locals, many of them only 11, 12, or 13 years old, and orphaned or abandoned by the war. Many of the members snuck back into the United States where they stayed or were captured and deported once again. This created a steady exchange between the cliques in the states and the cliques back in El Salvador. To make matters worse, the U.S. government and international human rights groups exerted influence to pressure El Salvador into weakening the criminal justice system by, for instance, making it illegal to apply criminal sanctions to anyone under 18 years old, which were precisely who the gangs were recruiting and using to carry out the criminal activities. Is this incompetence or is it deliberate? Probably both. 
On one hand, you have the vacuous blue state libs who are like, oh, under 18, he's a child. You can't prosecute him as an adult. He was, he, was, he was influenced into cutting off that man's head and eating his brain. You can't prosecute him as an adult. And then on the flip side, you have the, the people who fully understand exactly what the implications of this are, who are intentionally creating this destabilization and using the gangs as their own private military force to maintain control over these economic zones, because that's what they see every country. That's what they see the United States as. We're an economic zone. Their job is to maintain corporate serfs to produce for them economically. They're doing the same thing in Central and South America. And the, the gangs are the, the, the wing, the violent wing that they use to, in cooperation with the corporate media, funded and populated by NGOs. They publish the NGO papers. The NGOs do their studies and evaluate the things on the ground. And then they, they push these papers to the media. The media passes them on credulously, probably believing every word. And meanwhile, behind the scenes, the NGOs are cooperating with the gangs. And, he, and this is the front for the intelligence community. They use the gangs as the stick. They use the media as the carrot. And this is how they main control, maintain control over these areas. Let me catch up on some of your comments here real quick before we keep reading. Because you, you guys are popping in here today. Nate Baker, what's up, buddy? He says, many times the same contractors are used to build public schools and prisons. Go figure. Right. Kate J says, the brain drain, as Oren has talked about. Yep. Then let's see here. How did they become privy to Satanism? Hmm, I wonder. That'd be an interesting little thread to tug on. I have a feeling I know where it's connected. Uh, da, 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 da. The Screwed Up Rebellion says M18 Salvadoran gangs say they are the real devils. 666 equals 18. There's a lot of them down here in Texas and nobody has heard of them. <clears throat> okay. All right. Okay, let's continue. The violence that occurred after the so-called peace as a result of the newly established gangs in the country exceeded that of the brutal civil war. More died from gang violence during the peace than had died in the civil war at the hands of guerrillas, death squads, and soldiers, and more were displaced. While the war had displaced a million, the ranks of those displaced to the U.S. and some to other countries swelled to over three million, one-third of the Salvadoran population, after the war as a result of the gang violence. And gang members mixed in with those displaced, following them and becoming established in new places in the United States, like the affluent suburbs of Northern Virginia. In the earliest days of MS-13, when it was still a stoner gang, the satanic ritualism was mostly confined to a small handful of members who practiced it much in the same way as other bored delinquent teens in the 1970s. By the mid-2000s, the nature of the gang crimes as well as the frequency began to grow worse. The satanism of early MS-13 started to return and also be practiced by the 18th Street Gang, the main rivals to MS-13. I'm told that this was likely not passed down through the group, but picked up again independently from the Mexican Mafia, of which many members are involved in the cult of Santa Muerte and other occult practices and, and witchcraft. The brutality of the gang's crimes is increasingly horrific, the Los Angeles Times reported in 2004. Homicide victims, including many women and teenage girls, often are found so mutilated that Spanish priest Jose Maria Morataya, who runs a San Salvador rehabilitation and job training center for former gang members, sub- suspects that some gang members practice satanic rituals. You think? During a sweeping 2016 case against MS-13 tried in federal court in Alexandria, Alexandria, Virginia, Jose Del Cid, an MS-13 member who started his career as a killer at the tender age of nine, testified, when you are involved in MS-13, you feel that the devil is helping you, and sometimes the devil 
Apple asked you to do things for him. Scores of interviews with former and imprisoned gang members have turned up talk of pacts with the devil and hearing the voice of the devil or the beast as the entity is frequently referred to. The beast wanted a soul, an MS-13 member nicknamed Diabolical, testified in a Houston courtroom about the 15-year-old girl he murdered, and also to actual possession by the devil in the commission of murder. There's some pictures of MS-13 gang members in uh, Chalatenango, Chalatenango Prison, El Salvador, 2018. I wonder what uh, if, if you could uh, connect MK Ultra to this. I wonder what sort of interesting things you would uncover. Under the presidency of Mauricio Funes from 2009 to 2014, the first Salvadoran president to represent the leftist FMLN party, the government and the gangs negotiated a deal endorsed by the Catholic Church and the Organization of American States, which would allow the leaders of the gangs to be transferred to lower security prisons, which the gangsters would effectively control in exchange for lowering the homicide rate. Note that OAS was one of the organizations that Bukele specifically called out in the speech we were watching. During this period, the rival gangs largely stopped killing each other, but continued to prey on the civilian population through extortion and other crimes. The peace agreement merely allowed the gang's space to consolidate and strengthen. The lower security prisons were worse than a joke. They were an offense to normal people. Strippers and Pollo Campero were brought in for the bosses. The next president, Salvador Sanchez Seren, also of FMLN and a former guerrilla himself, allegedly paid MS-13 $250,000 for votes in the 2014 presidential election, which he won by just 6,634 votes. By the end of Funes' term and before Sanchez was even sworn in, the truce had broken down. By 2015, El Salvador had the highest homicide rate in the world. 2015 was the year that El Salvador attained the status of the most dangerous country in the world. And it was also the year that Naive Bukele was narrowly elected as the mayor of San Salvador as the candidate of the leftist FMLN party. His tenure as mayor foreshadowed how he would eventually come to govern as president. He made the city cleaner and safer and successfully implemented a number of popular public works and initiatives. In 2017, he was expelled from the FMLN for criticizing party leaders. Rejecting both the traditional left-wing and right-wing parties, FMLN and ARENA, respectively, and looking forward to the 2019 presidential election, he formed his own party, Nuevas Ideas, or New Ideas. In the chat here, Screwed Up Rebellion said, M18 don't all get tatted up like MS-13 does from my experience. I used to know an MS-13 member who had to shoot random people at Walmart to join the gang. It's crazy. I've heard stories about this kind of thing, but uh, never actually seen it um, in such stark detail like this. Uh, okay, let's get back to this. Looks like we've got 67 viewers and 26 likes right now. Come on, folks. Give us our likes. Please please uh, pay us in our currency. <laughs> you can also uh, send super chats as well. We, do, we are super chat eligible on the channel here. Uh, loving all the new subscribers we're getting lately. Every time I look, there's a whole bunch of new ones. Um, so if you'd like to send a super chat, we'll read that off and you can help support this, this effort and uh, help us to continue to grow the show. <clears throat> Leading up to the 2019 presidential election, Bukele was already polling higher than any of the other potential presidential candidates. The old parties, FMLN and ARENA, teamed up to block his participation in the election. The Supreme Electoral Tribunal, the nation's highest election authority, ruled that, despite meeting the conditions to register in time for the next election, Nuevas Ideas would not be allowed to compete in elections until after the presidential election was concluded. Interesting. You've got the uh, existing parties cooperating to freeze out the popular candidate, the candidate that everybody likes, the up-and-comer, 
the outsider. He's getting frozen out through uh, electoral manipulation. In order to run for president, Bukele had to run as the candidate of another party. The center-left Cambio Democratico, Democratic Change Party, was the most logical choice, as Bukele had ran for mayor as the FMLN candidate, but in alliance with Cambio Democratico. But in the evening of July 25th, 2018, just hours before the deadline for candidates to register themselves for the election, the Supreme Electoral Tribunal secretly met and decided to cancel Cambio Democratico's eligibility to participate in the election. They also decided to wait until the next day to announce it when it would be too late for Bukele to change his party affiliation. Bukele got wind of the secret meeting and what was being plotted around 9 or 10 p.m. He immediately and secretly withdrew his affiliation from Cambio Democratico, and with less than an hour to go before the midnight deadline, he officially affiliated himself with Ghana, a small center-right party. He outwitted them. The following day, the Supreme Electoral Tribunal announced that Cambio Democratico's participation in the presidential election was canceled, and with it, Naive Bukele's bid for the presidency. After the court's press announcement, Bukele made his own announcement. He had switched parties and was, in fact, very much an active and eligible candidate for the presidency. He had outmaneuvered the anti-democratic forces, which had conspired to prevent the citizens of, of, of El Salvador from being able to vote for him. Democracy was saved. He stood in the election and won outright in the first round, taking 53% of the total vote, more than all of his opponents combined. President Bukele was sworn into office on June 1, 2019. At midnight on June 20th, in front of a crowd of police officers and soldiers standing in Gerardo, Bar Gerardo Barrios Plaza, he announced the territorial control plan. So this territorial control plan was very clearly something that was already prepared ahead of time. He had infrastructure and plans and coordination and networks built out to facilitate this happening. He navigated the election uh, engineering and uh, fortification, you might say, and he had an existing plan already in place, ready to go. This plan, the territorial control plan, was, as I've, as I've read and understood, this was a seven-phase plan. And set, this phase seven was unknown. The first six phases were known. And the seventh phase was described as the phase that would kick in if the government failed to solve the problems in the first six phases. Could leave that to your imagination. Phase one of the plan was called preparation. It involved concentrating on disrupting the finances of the gangs and taking back control of historic city and town centers in 12 key municipalities. 2,000 police officers from the National Civil Police and 3,000 soldiers of the armed forces. Another 1,000 soldiers were added one month later. Prisons were put on lockdowns with cell phone signals. <clears throat> What's up, Mr. Cooper? Oh, hey. He has arisen. <laughs> Uh, another hundred, another thousand soldiers were added one month later. Prisons were put on lockdowns with cell phone signals around the prisons blocked. All visitors suspended and higher ranking prisoners transferred to higher security prison. Phase two was called opportunity. It was an effort conducted in parallel with, with other operational phases and focused on offering youth a different path than the gangs. The creation of a social fabric revitalization unit. Construction of schools and sports centers, expansion of educational opportunities and vocational training, and so on. Phase three, modernization, involved equipping the military and police force with modern weapons, vehicles, body armor, helicopters, night vision, etc. It was announced in August, and by October, an agreement with the Central American Development Bank was negotiated to secure a $109 million loan. When approved of the loan, 
When approval of the loan came up before the Legislative Assembly, it was initially opposed by the leftist FMLN, but was expected to pass with support from ARENA, the traditional right-wing party. But then ARENA pulled its support for the loan. The Bukele-aligned parties, Nuevas Ideas, Cambio Democratico, and Ghana, together only held 20 of the 82 seats in the Legislative Assembly. A large segment of ARENA's 37-member caucus was needed to get over the 43-vote <laughs> threshold for approval. This set the stage for the most dramatic moment yet of Bukele's presidency. Now, before we continue with that, Cooper, do you have any thoughts thus far? Did you jump on to say anything in particular, or are you just here to, to you don't get fined? So I don't get fined? Yeah, it's a, it's a Marshall Lynch reference. Those who get it will appreciate it, those who don't. Oh, sorry. Uh, I did have something I was going to say earlier, like a half an hour ago when I was listening to something you were talking about. It's gone at this point. I'm operating at like 37% my usual brain capacity. <laughs> All right, then we'll continue. I just wanted to I just wanted to see the people. I'm just here for the people. He's a man of the people. I'm a man of the people. I'm here for you guys. Well, this means now you can you can make it a little easier on me because I can just focus on reading and you can track the chat. And yes, I can feel the chat. Highlight, you can you can let me know. Indeed. Um, we're going to read a little bit more here and then we're going to pull away and cover a little bit of background um, separately on uh, uh, Wikipedia and then we'll come back. On Thursday, February 6th, President Bukele invoked Article 167 of El Salvador's Constitution to convene an extraordinary session of the Legislative Assembly. Article 167, that's how many articles they have in their Constitution. <laughs> the next day, he then called on the citizens to join him at the Legislative Assembly. Thousands responded and surrounded the legislature that Sunday afternoon, along with the police and military. But fewer than half of the deputies of the Legislative Assembly appeared for the session. Addressing the crowd from a hastily erected stage, he railed against the members of the legislature for failing to approve the financing of the war against the gangs, calling them criminals and charging them with collusion with the gangs and indifference to the safety of the public. He's, he's straight up, this is, this is Congress, he's straight up calling Congress a bunch of criminals. <laughs> he then asked the crowd, quote, I want to ask you to let me enter the blue hall of the legislative assembly to say a prayer and that God give us wisdom for the steps we are going to take, and then the decision will be up to you. Do you authorize me? Yes, the crowd responded. God bless you, Salvadoran people. I ask you to wait for me here. I'll be back in a moment. Just be, like visualize this as I'm reading this. This is, this is like the coolest thing that any head of state has done in I don't know how long. <laughs> then, flanked by rows of military school cadets in dress uniform, and as the Granadera march sounded, the president entered the legislative assembly and walked into the legislative chamber. A detachment of riot police and armed soldiers were already standing inside. Bukele walked up to the dais and sat in the chair of the assembly president, Mario Ponce. He spoke briefly to the 31 deputies who had gathered, thanking them for their attendance and decrying their absent colleagues, concluding by saying, it is clear who is in control of the situation. We're going to put the decision in the hands of God, and then began to pray for several minutes. After he finished praying, he got up without a word and went back outside to address the crowd for a second time. He gestured for calm and said, quote, 
The entire Salvadoran people know, our adversaries know, the international community knows it, our armed forces knows it, our police know it, all the factual powers of the country know it. If we wanted to press the button, we just press the button. But I asked God and God told me patience, patience, patience. The crowd responded in disagreement. They were ready for action. Patience, responded Bukele. On February 28, all those scoundrels are going to come out the outside door and we are going to take them out democratically. Why are we going to question the true power of the people in democracy? Why, if we are going to have this assembly in a few months? Why are we going to take it by force, even if the Constitution gives them the right and I'm not going to prevent them? I ask for your patience. If these scoundrels do not approve the territorial control plan this week, we will convene again here on Sunday. We ask God for wisdom again, and we say, God, you asked me for patience, but these scoundrels do not want to work for the people. The crowd continued to murmur in dissatisfaction. Quote, God is wiser than we are. God is wiser than we are. One week, gentlemen, one week. No people that goes against God has triumphed. As President Bukele left the stage and shook hands with a few supporters, the crowd began happily chanting, insurrection, insurrection, insurrection. The El Salvador opposition's leaders called this an attempted coup. The Constitutional Chamber of the Supreme Court requested that President Bukele refrain from using the police and military in such a manner. The American ambassador condemned the action. So did the European Union and the Vatican. The crisis appeared to be at an impasse. Bukele ordered the mobilization of another 1,400 soldiers to fight the gang, saying, we have to go out and work with or without resources. And then suddenly another crisis emerged that washed the present one away. COVID-19 cases were starting to pop up around Latin America. For the next year, it would occupy an inordinate amount of time and energy. One year after the president's brief incursion into the legislative branch, his Nuevas Ideas party succeeded in its permanent takeover via the ballot box, winning an astounding 56 seats. Now, Bukele was free to govern with the full support of the legislature. So real quick, what happened in between here? So this was... Uh, this was in early uh, 2020. So between early 2020 and 20, uh, mid-2021, you had the 2021 Salvadoran political crisis. So this says this was the, the, a political crisis in El Salvador occurred on the 1st of May 2021 when the Legislative Assembly of El Salvador voted to remove several judges from the Supreme Court and remove the Attorney General of El Salvador, both of which had been vocal opponents to the presidency of Nayib Bukele. This event has been referred to as a self-coup by the opposition and by news media outlets due to the action itself, but also because of the 2020 Salvadoran political crisis in the year prior, where Bukele ordered soldiers into the Legislative Assembly, which has also been characterized as a self-coup. So it goes on the details of the. 2020 <laughs> what does that situation. mean? Self coup? I don't. What does that mean? That's actually a good point. What are they? What are they calling a self coup? An auto coup or a coup from the top is a form of coup d'état in which a nation's head, having come to power through legal means, tries to stay in power through illegal means. Ah, I see. Okay. So, on twenty eight February twenty twenty one. The 2021 Salvadoran legislative election resulted in a victory for Nuevas Ideas, Bukele's political party, which won 56 of the Legislative Assembly's 84 seats. The new session of the Legislative Assembly began on 1 May 2021.
Ponce's term as president of the Legislative Assembly ended with the new session of the legislature, and the new session vo voted in Ernesto Castro as the new president of the Legislative Assembly with a margin of 64 votes in favor and 20 abstentions. So so uh, the, the 20 uh, other legislators just were taking their ball and going home. <laughs> Following the vote of Castro, the Legislative Assembly then voted to remove all five judges of the Supreme Court's Constitutional Court, which had opposed Bukele in the past citing that they had previously issued arbitrary decisions. That vote ended 64 in favor, 19 in opposition, and one abstention. Elisa Rosales, a leader of Nuevas Ideas, stated that there was clear evidence that the judges had impeded government conduct and that they had to be removed to protect the public. Immediately <laughs> after the vote, this is the best part, immediately after the vote, the five judges ruled the vote unconstitutional. <laughs> they're like, we're removing you. And they're like, you can't do that. And they were like, okay, please leave. The judges were removed anyway. <laughs> the judges who were removed were yada, 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 yada. Later that same day, the Legislative Assembly also voted to remove Melara as Attorney General, and he later presented his resignation. Rodolfo Delgado replaced Melara as Attorney General on 2 May of 2021. Five new judges were appointed on 3 May 2021, all of whom were supporters of Bukele. Uh, they were these guys, and they were each given armed guards as personal bodyguards. So the voting out of the judges and the attorney general has been labeled as a coup, a self-coup, a power play, and a power grab by several news outlets and the political opposition of El Salvador as it gave Bukele and Nuevas Ideas increased political power. Ah! It has also been labeled as a threat to democracy. Ah! And they quote the lawmaker from the, from, the, from the conservative party saying, what happened last night in the legislative assembly with the majority that the people gave them through the vote is a coup. The majority that the people gave them through the vote. It's a coup. <laughs> uh, so that's the background. Um, that was something that wasn't mentioned in this article, and I think it's relevant. Because then... so that It's only between, democracy when it works the way I want it to. Right. Yeah, it's only democracy when the NGOs and the journalists agree with the outcome. <laughs> right. Uh, okay, so... The election here, he mentions uh, one year after the brief incursion of the legislative branch, his election, uh, the his, his party succeeded in his permanent takeover via the ballot box. Now Bukele was free to govern with the full support of the legislature. So the first thing he did was he eliminated the five judges, the five corrupt judges who had been blockading him, and the attorney general, replaced them with loyalists, and now you get, on July 19, 2021, President Bukele announced phase four of the territorial control plan, incursion. This phase focused on the government reestablishing security control of the no-go zones that police had previously found it difficult or impossible to operate in. I've spoken to several Salvadorans who lived in such barrios, taxi drivers who had to pay extortion fees when they entered and left the barrio, little ladies with pupusa stands who had to pay the gangs a percentage of receipts or face the disappearance of their sons, men who could not cross certain geographic boundaries to buy food or they would be killed, they had to send their wives to do it. This phase of the plan was to take away the gang's ownership of space and allow the citizens to freely work and come and go as they pleased without fear. As part of this phase, a new goal was to announce was announced to double the size of the armed forces from 20,000 to 40,000 troops. The operations to claim the barrios had put the gang members in a defensive posture. For months, the homicide rate had been extraordinarily low as gang members were forced into hiding. But on March 26, 2022, the gangs went on a killing spree, targeting street vendors, bus passengers, and grocery shoppers. 
It was El Salvador's bloodiest day since the Civil War. The gangs intended to send a message to the government. I believe I read that it was something like 62 people were murdered that day. I was told by a high-level source that there was great anxiety all throughout the war on the gangs that this would happen. It's why one of the first steps that had been taken was to secure and move the high-ranking gang leaders in prison, out of concern that after the crackdowns began, one of them would be able to get a message to the outside that would give the order for the gangs to begin carrying out mass casualty attacks on soft targets in an effort to intimidate the public and the government into submission. Pablo Escobar pioneered this tactic in Colombia, but he certainly wasn't the last gangster to use it. In the parts of Latin America riddled with organized crime, nearly everyone in society is a hostage and a human shield. And remember what we were talking about at the beginning, that this is the way that you had the carrot and you had the stick. So the stick was the gangs. The gangs were essentially the, um, the, the security force being used by international governments and NGOs to maintain control over the region. So he's going in, he's, he's, he's used democracy to put himself in power, and then he's using the power of democracy while he's in power to take out the enforcement mechanism that has kept his country subjugated. The reaction by the government was swift and resolute. In the early hours the next day, the National Assembly passed a state of emergency and a state of exception. So real quick, the El Salvador state of exception. I love the name. State of exception. Very Schmidian. Um, where was the article that I had? Uh, well, this is the U.S. Embassy's 2022 El Salvador Human Rights Report. That's not going to be useful. Um, the, the state of exception, I'm trying to remember all the details with it. I, I read about it, and I don't remember where I read about it, but essentially... Uh, suspended civil liberties, including due process. This is reading from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Uh, this move was supposed to bring security to a country that has long suffered extreme homicide rates caused by street gangs engaged in protracted conflicts and oppressive extortion rackets. But over the past year, Bukele's government has arrested over 65,000 people, one in six of whom the police forces themselves estimate are innocent. International organizations have reported on wide-scale human rights abuses in the prison, including overcrowding and deaths. At the same time, Bukele, the self-proclaimed world's coolest dictator, has turned his eye to civil society organizations in the media, framing them as defenders of gangs. Last month, the country's leading independent news outlet relocated its operations to Costa Rica, stating that it is currently too dangerous to have its headquarters in El Salvador. Yet one aspect of El Salvador's democratic backsliding under the state of exception has so far received less attention. Its harmful impact on women. Amid the ongoing crackdown, gender-based violence and gendered vulnerabilities have become a form of collateral damage. So this is... Gives you an idea, like these listen people to what's actually evil, happening and listen to the way it's being framed. And you can connect those those dots. This is where the the gender, LGBTQ, ESG, all these different things are corporate weapons being mm -hmm. used to maintain the status quo in these countries outside the US. Yeah, you know what's better, Matt? We should just continue allowing gang members to just rape people. That's what we should mm -hmm. allow because, you know, some women might get hurt when the crackdown comes and that's, we can't accept that. So we'll just let them keep oh, getting yeah. raped because getting raped is better than getting bonked on the head or something, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. Or getting arrested and then released when it's, when it turns out that you're, uh, that you're, uh, cause this is what happened. There was people, they went door to door collecting people. I think you might get into it later in here, but they went door to door, just arresting people, anyone who was suspected of being um, associated with the gangs. And then there were some people who were were investigated and then cleared and released again. 
um, which is actually, honestly, it's pretty remarkable that um, five out of six people who they arrested were not affiliated with the gangs by the numbers being given by this uh, this gay NGO. Um, question, how many people are in El Salvador? What's like the, the population? That's a good question. Let's see. It's 65,000 people. I'm trying to, trying to like... As of 2021, 6.3 million. Okay. So, so basically like 0.06% or, or, or no, 1% of the population. Yeah. Um, that's a lot of people. It's a lot of people, but, it, and at the same time, it's also like, it's a lot of people when you're talking about gang members, like yeah. it's a lot of gang members to have in your society at the same time on the scale of like the, the way this is framed to the public consuming audience is um, you know, like, like half the population has been subjugated and put into prison and it's 65,000 people. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, Oh no, it's crowded in there. And the human rights file, like dude, the, the rights, the quote human rights of gang members doesn't mean a whole lot to me compared to like the human rights of <laughs> the women and children that they're mm -hmm. raping. You know, he actually in, in the speech we we were listening to at the beginning, if we went further in it, he said, you guys complain about human rights. And he's like, whose rights have we violated? Is it the the criminals, the gang members, the murderers, the rapists? Why are you more concerned about their rights than the human rights of the people who they were preying on? And he did an even more in an even better way because he's knows how to use words. Uh, OK, so. Most murders in a single day since the uh, the um, the Civil War. The reaction by the government was swift and resolute. In the early hours of the next day, the National Assembly passed a state of emergency and a state of exception. The gangs had treated the public as hostages. Now the president began treating their imprisoned homeboys similarly. Meal rations were cut. Mattresses and clothes were taken away. The inmates now only wore underwear and slept on concrete. <laughs> The president vowed that if there were any more waves of gang violence, that the imprisoned gang members would not be fed a single grain of rice. This was met with howls of disapproval by international NGOs like Human Rights Watch, the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, Amnesty International, and the United Nations, to which the president responded, they can take their gang members if they want. We'll give them all of them. Mm -hmm. Over the next, uh, of course, nobody came collecting. <laughs> Right. Every single one of those organizations needs to figuratively be burned to the ground. Mm-hmm. In Minecraft. Right. The, uh, it's funny that they're like, oh, there's human rights violations. These people are being abused. And he's like, okay, come take them. Come treat them well. Don't, 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 subju don't subjugate them to my abuse. Why don't you take them and you care for them? And they're like, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Over the next few months, the war against the gangs intensified. Tens of thousands of gang members were arrested, more than the prisons could reasonably hold. In July of 2022, Bukele announced the construction of the largest prison in Latin America, CICOT, or the Center for the Confinement of Terrorism, with a capacity for 40,000 inmates. In November 2022, Phase 5 of the Territorial Control Plan was announced. Extraction. Police and soldiers began encircling communities where gang members were suspected of hiding and conducting house-by-house -house searches until every single person was checked. In February 2023, the opening of CCOT was accompanied with the publication of videos showing prisoner transfers there. And this was the point at which he really kind of started getting on people's radar. Because this is when, if you remember the videos, very well-produced videos with drone footage and everything of all these guys in their underwear being marched nuts to butts and like 
like they're in like a gigantic arena or something like that. And they all sitting nuts to butts lined up all the way across the floor. He took all these gangsters and stripped them down to their skivvies and just marched them around and massively publicly humiliated them. Flexing videos. Yeah. <laughs> nice. I like this it. It's crazy. Like, I like it's it's cringe to think that like a couple of years ago I would have been like squealing about this. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Human rights, oh dictator. Yeah. Now it's like, yeah, yeah. Authoritarianism. Can, can I have some of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um it's and it's so it's it's crazy as I was reading through this and I realized, okay, that's the point at which he really got on my radar. That's when I was like, oh, wait a second, you know wow, this guy's like marching gang members around. Even then I was like, yeah, I'm sure that a lot of those people maybe aren't gang members. There's probably some poor sap that got caught up in there and he's like, oh, <laughs> fuck, I'm fucked. Because <laughs> now, yeah, now well, he's like, like locked in with the gang members and the gang members are like, bro, you're not one of us. And he's like, <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah, I am. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he is now. He's got to become right. one. Yeah. But, you know, like, <clears throat> I don't know. Consider it... Uh, service to the mm -hmm. uh the younger generations that yeah you had to spend a couple of weeks with gang members wrongfully mm -hmm. it was crazy to me though to realize like that all of the stuff we've read about all the stuff that was all those goings on never never out like you would have had to be following the news really closely to, to pick up on that and track with what was happening down there nobody paying nobody's paying attention to el salvador nobody cares which is interesting because he's doing all of this and you would think this there would be a gigantic hue and cry that this would be like front news on CNN everybody like they would be wanting to to mobilize their their operations to take this guy out but for whatever reason he's not getting taken out so what this tells me is well number 1 he's eliminated their enforcement mechanism but even to get to the point of eliminating the enforcement mechanism he has very powerful friends this territorial <clears throat> control plan didn't come from nowhere. This wasn't just like some aspiring, some guy who's a mayor and he's like, oh, I want to be president someday. Let me come up with the way I'm going to take these guys out. If this was, if this was the case, if this is all something he bootstrapped himself, he's the most remarkable human being in the history of the planet. Like he's, 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 he's a superhuman. This is very clearly something that would require massive coordination and a massive network and resources and protection. There's people, there's somebody who's looking out for him and ensuring that the, the usual suspects are kept at bay. Ryan Isaac says, oh, he's joking, but rather 99 men be unfairly imprisoned than one go free. But it, that reminded me of, there is that saying, I don't know who said, was it Voltaire? One of those like enlightenment guys was like, you know, better that 99 criminals go free than one, one innocent man be imprisoned. And I remember, I remember learning that or hearing that in high school and that being kind of lauded as like a, you know, an aspiration. Mm -hmm. That's so insane. Uh-huh. <laughs> Imagine you just society like, built around those premises. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like I used to be, I grew up, you know, totally bought into that. Liberty mm -hmm. and all of that stuff and. That's it is insane. such a great atrocity if one person is unfairly imprisoned, even if the cost of that is that 99% of criminals are, 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 are set loose, are just cut free and, and uh, cut loose, set free. 
And... I mean, if a hundred percent of criminals were imprisoned, and then like I don't know, even twenty percent of people in prison were innocent, is that is that a reasonable cost? That a hundred percent of criminals are locked up, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't know. John Brown says, "Isn't that from the line of thinking from the Bible?" It would be. I, there, there, there is. There is stuff to that that to that uh, notion in the Bible, but also the Bible isn't laying out a prescription for how a society is supposed to be governed. Abe Lincoln is that who it is? Is that who said that? Maybe that's what I don't know. Doctor Crispy's saying, or he did, maybe he just said Abe Lincoln for no reason. Um, Even just but like if you just look at it from a practical perspective, if you use that sentiment, like better that better that ninety nine. Uh, guilty men go free than one innocent man be falsely persecuted. That's an exhortation to not falsely persecute innocent man, innocent men. That's not an exhortation to release 99 guilty men, but it can be taken that way. Is it from, is that from the Bible? I don't recall that, but I don't think yeah. that specifically is in the Bible. There is, I know that there is um, a verse, Benjamin Franklin. Okay. Just, there's different now verses that saying, speak to that. Josh is saying it was Benjamin Franklin that, yeah, seems to check out someone saying Tolstoy Tolstoy that seems like something he would say because he's kind of a fag yeah but the, like these kinds of pithy ather- aphorisms are not meant to be uh, to become like the basis for the governance of a society you can't have the, the premise be well we have to avoid imprisoning imprisoning uh, uh, innocent people so we're just going to have a real light hand and just let the criminals run amok. It, it's you that, that that's an, an egregious abuse of that sentiment. Yeah. Cicero. I think people are just making stuff up now. Yeah. You're getting trolled. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just like, <laughs> maybe it was my uncle or. Uh, okay. Where were we here? Okay. From the United States and over the internet, it seemed as if the atmosphere in El Salvador was authoritarian and tense. I had to experience it for myself. I flew down for a week in March of 2023, but instead of the neo-fascist police oh, state, I'd been Sodom and Gomorrah. Was that what he's referencing? Genesis chapter 18. Oh, maybe. Yeah. Uh, I flew down for a week in March 2023, but instead of the neo-fascist police state I'd been told by the media to expect, there was instead an air of peace and freedom. I could wander around the poor roads of San Salvador on foot and drive along remote rural roads at night with no threat of danger. It was not just how I was received. I'm fully aware that gringos in Latin America are often treated differently than the locals. I observed and talked to many of the locals. They were able to go out in the plazas and to the soccer fields and enjoy themselves for the first time in decades. For some, it was the first time in their life that they'd experienced such peace. There was a noticeable police presence in the poorer areas of San Salvador, but they were not rough with the locals as I had witnessed previously in Colombia and Brazil. They were well professionalized. I returned home impressed. I went to El Salvador in 2003, I think, and I spent like three weeks there. And at the time, we had to have a, a, a police escort whenever our bus went anywhere. Same thing in Guatemala when I was there in 2005, I think. Um, Everywhere we went, we got the same like police escort. I was there with my my high school. We were doing a uh, like a concert tour, and we we had a police presence that, that escorted us everywhere that we went, all throughout. And then anywhere we stayed was always in like secure, um, 
uh, like secured facilities and stuff. So like within San Salvador itself, there was there was some nice kind of nice areas. There was some skyscrapers and everything. Um, but uh, right now, our uh, subdeacon and his wife are in El Salvador, and they sent us back a message and said that they are that that it's it's peaceful, beautiful, upscale, modernizing. That it's 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 great. <clears throat> In August, I was taken on a helicopter tour of the countryside, and as Seacock came into view, my first impression was not of a prison, but of a monastery, a place where the chaos and noise of the outside world is shut out and the voice of God can be heard. The harsh crackdown was necessary to provide a firebreak, an absolute halt to the violence, which was feeding a downward spiral that sucked many into a life of crime. Now that there's finally peace, the work of healing and building can proceed. The gang members themselves are freer than ever before. Free from being trapped in lives of crime, free from drugs and alcohol, free from the threat of violence at the hands of rivals or their own gangs. I'm told by several missionaries that there is a surge in former gang members becoming born-again Christians, and the prison society is becoming gradually transformed from within into genuine spiritual fraternities. For the kids who would otherwise be growing up in an environment that pressured them into joining the gangs, that pressure is gone, and tremendous energy is going into empowering the youth of the nation to live good, decent lives. The national homicide rate is now on par with Luxembourg. El Salvador is the safest country in the Western Hemisphere, safer than the United States, safer than my own county, which has a homicide rate that is four times worse. Businesses no longer have the tax of extortion by the gangs. They're free to expand. Workers no longer have to pay extortion fees either, so there's more money for them to invest in their families and enterprises. The psychic relief is incalculable. The security dividend is rapidly, rapidly transforming the country. I traveled to El Salvador again in August and then again in November. Though mere months had passed between trips, there were clear improvements upon each visit. New public works and parks, new shops and restaurants, and a renewed sense of pride and joyfulness among the people. In November, I visited the new National Library in the historic section of San Salvador, a gift of the People's Republic of China. It is a magnificent building that is open 24-7, 365. Volunteers are there to work with children, and there are special sections for those with special needs and disabilities. The books themselves are well curated. The great books of the Western tradition are all there. It's a palace of learning and culture, open and accessible to all. Caddy corner from the library, there's a new public plaza under construction, which will feature a carousel and street cafes. On the plywood walls encasing the construction site is the motto of the Ministry of Public Works, quote, there is enough money when no one steals, which references the new target of President Bukele's war on crime, corruption. A new prison is being built on the model of Seacott, but named Seacock. <laughs> Center for the Confinement of Corruption. It is a place to send those who offer or take bribes. Several former presidents are either in jail for corruption or have fled from Salvadoran authorities. One would think that such a rapid transformation would be met with relief and praise in all corners of Western society. But the media, the political class, and many NGOs have all responded to the Salvadoran miracle with varying degrees of hostility, claiming that Salvadoran democracy is in danger. They had little to say, however, when the TSE tried to block Bukele from running the first time. Mm -hmm. The reason the Western powers hate Bukele is that he shows that an alternative model of governance, one where the common good is the main priority, is far superior than the post-liberal plutocratic systems we find ourselves in today. But there's little they can do about it. Millions of Salvadorians are still in the United States, though many are starting to repatriate themselves home, and they universally adore Bukele. Any overt actions taken by the U.S. government against Bukele would assuredly lead to paralyzing mass protests. Bukele is also supported strongly by key Republican officials in Congress who oversee the U.S. State Department. 
Bukele's position is entirely different from that of a Lukashenko or Yanukovych. Many of Bukele's international admirers have claimed that he has shown that it is easy to fix the key problems of our societies. I disagree. What President Bukele did was simple, yes, put the bad guys in jail, but it was not easy. It took enormous will, courage, and dogged perseverance to accomplish what he did. It also took no small amount of charisma and some trickery as well, as in the case where he had to outmaneuver his enemies to appear on the ballot. And he did it at the reins of a country whose population had experienced over four decades of turmoil. At every turn, the population was there to back him up. It is the most religious population on earth, dominated by evangelicals, mostly Pentecostals, and they responded strongly to his message of carrying out a holy war against the satanic gangs. Even <laughs> if we had a Bukele, it is questionable whether our weak, watered-down, secular, first-world societies would stick with him and back him the way Salvadorans have consistently done with Bukele, returning him to office this Sunday with nearly 90% of the vote. But there are other countries in the region who have gone through similar turmoil and insecurity as El Salvador these last few decades. The new president of Ecuador is patterning his war against the cartels there after Bukele's security operations. El Salvador is sending advisors to other countries like Honduras to help them adopt similar models. It may be that Latin America emerges from its dysfunction well before the so-called first world. And if it does, it will all be because of an audacious man born on the same day as the first liberator of Latin America, Simon Bolivar. Naive Bukele. Yes, Screwed Up Rebellion. The paper is uh, IM1776. It's im1776.com slash l-salvador-history. Should be short and easy enough for you to remember. Um, or you can just go to im1776.com, and it's the uh, it's their foremost article there right now. So it's very interesting looking at uh, part of some of the stuff we've been talking about, the, the PayPal mafia, the... the um, this kind of rising counter elite with a big Silicon Valley emphasis is there's a big overlap with crypto, obviously. And this is a big part of Bukele's thing. It didn't even get into it. The Bitcoin city, they're, they're starting a Bitcoin city and they're, they're doing it at the base of a volcano using uh, uh, the geothermal energy to power the city. This is one of their creative ways of getting around the fact that, as he mentions in his speech, he says, "There's we're not a we're not a rich nation. We're not a country with a ton of natural resources. We don't have a ton of energy. You know, we're we're just a small, poor nation. But we're building with what we have. We've talked before about Prospera, the the thing going on in Honduras, free private city, got close ties to uh, to people in the Peter Thiel orbit." <clears throat> So that's going on in Honduras, and there's other operations in other parts of Latin America that are similar to this. This free private cities concept is starting to really gain some steam, and there's a lot of institutional energy and, and power and money behind it. I think we're going to see that continuing to increase. There's a, um, there's a project that we're working on that I think we're going to do a full episode talking about it in detail, but it's related to this idea of, of free cities and a potential idea that we could implement in the United States. President Trump has even suggested it before, and we want to flesh that out in more detail. It's a project that we're working on in the, the Kingpill Discord um, that uh, we're going to do it as a community. We're going to build this, 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 this idea out as a, as a community and see if we can get some legs to it. But the reason why I wanted to highlight this today with Bukele is because 
number one, I think a lot of people just aren't fully aware of the whole background of everything that's been going on there. I wasn't until this last week. I read this article and read, uh, just went through and read his whole Wikipedia to see what had been going on. And the big question I wanted to answer for myself was, why is this being allowed? How is, how is he able to make moves like this? If you look into his, like his Bitcoin advisors, he's got a, there's a number of significant Bitcoin people who are associated with them and they're associated with particular organizations. It's not very hard to do one, two, three degrees of separation to figure out what sort of people are backing him. You could tell with this seven phase plan that he had, the territorial control plan, this was well conceived. This is, this is gifted social engineers with uh, a lot of political will and a lot of resources sufficient a lot that of information. to actually navigate something like this. Yeah, a lot of information. Sado? Mm-hmm. So I, I think this is also a signal that the regime, we've been saying this, the regime is weaker than they seem. The re- this is not this is not the regime of the nineties. This isn't the regime of the two thousands. It's not even the regime of the twenty tens. This is a, a very weak regime that has started wars on too many fronts, and it can't maintain all of them effectively. At this point, him him being able to accomplish what he has already is a massive win historically. At this point, if he gets taken out it's that's a story in and of itself that he's accomplished this to this point and that the the internet exists the way it does to for us to even have a show like this and tell people about it putting this idea out there and 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 like you can't you can't hide it you can't put it away so even if even if he was an op or even if he got compromised somehow but dude he kissed a wall one time yeah, right, right. Yeah, that's the first. I'm, I'm, I'm expecting to get that in the, in the comments uh-huh. here. There's going to be a, someone that complains about how there's a picture of him with a tiny hat kissing a wall. And it just, I could not possibly care less. I mean, if you were, if you were going to, to take on this, you had this your great grand plan, and you were going to take on the regime, and you had your, your, your perfectly detailed plan for how you're going to take it over. You would not, as, as things have been for the past five years and beyond, this may change gradually over the next couple of decades, who knows, but at this point right now, you're never going to get in position to be able to make any of those types of moves without kissing a wall. It's just, you have to stay under the radar. So go do the meaningless gestures that cost you nothing and make you an asset. We need these guys as our assets. And if they have to kiss walls in order to do that, I could not care less. I just, I don't care. Yeah, I think they got bigger goals and bigger plans than, uh, you know, arguing with fucking Gunix on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so I think it's interesting to see how, how, how things go in Honduras. I think this uh, Latin American pride is a distinct thing. Latin Americans are nationalists. They're very hardcore nationalists. We were talking about this the other day that, um, I don't remember who I was talking about this with actually, but uh, Latin American communism and European communism are very different things. Communism was how nationalism happened to express itself in Latin America. But it's 
a very, very nationalistic um, region. It's part of the reason why they have all these battles with each other, because <clears throat> they're all um, uh, like very nationalist. If they come into the, I lived in L.A. and you definitely will get uh, squabbles between Mexicans and Salvies and um, Hondurans and Ecuadorians and Chileans. They all are like mutually suspicious and 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 rivalrous with each other. But the this sort of thing taking root in El Salvador and him being as beloved as he is and watching that country become, he's basically turning El Salvador into like the Silicon Valley of Central America. He's, the door is open for business. You can come do business here. We're going to incentivize you coming and doing business here. And you can live in the, in the Caribbean. I mean, I'm, I'm starting to lay out my, like, I don't know how long it's going to take, five years, 10 years, however many years. I'm starting to lay out my plan for moving to El Salvador because I, I love the area. I love it. It's beautiful. If it was competently run and prosperous, no questions. This would be one of the best places in the world to live. So he's, he's positioned himself to become a legitimate power broker, even though he's just one leader over one small country. It would not be at all difficult to form a central or south or like Latin American coalition of countries that are operating similarly. Watching things like Malay coming up, who definitely, I, I prefer Bukele to Malay, but you're starting to see this build a Caesar thing that we were talking about. It's popping up here, popping up there. But Bukele is the one who has gone the furthest. He's accomplished the most. And I think he's serving now as a model, both for, for, for other Latin American countries, for other countries around the world. This, this, the, the free cities, free private cities uh, uh, organizations, Charter Cities Institute, there's, I think there's a Free Private Cities Foundation or something like that. There's a number of them. <clears throat> They're working in uh, uh, the like in the Levant area, they're working in, um, I think there's, I saw one that was in like UAE. There's, there's a bunch over there in, in, in um, like the Middle East. There's some in Southeast Asia. There's, um, I think there's one in Africa somewhere. These things are starting to pop up and these are very much, uh, they, I'm not gonna say they're the future, but they signal the future. They signal the future that's coming. I think we're gonna see largely in a lot of places, national identities are going to start falling away and they're going to be replaced by internet identities. You're going to be identified with your internet community more than you are with your, your actual place of birth. But the places where nationalism, nationalist sentiment is going to be the strongest is in places like El Salvador, the way these are rising. I don't think that you can, you can take his model and port it directly to the United States. Obviously, there's a massive issue of scale. But you can do parts of it. You can do aspects of it. And it seems like piecing together the Project 2025, Silicon Valley, Hillsdale, Claremont, with what they're talking about, piecing that together with what he's doing and the people who are obviously behind him and working with him, he seems like he's kind of a dry run for what the, like the, the, the ultimate upshot of something here in the United States could be. It's, I mean, again, it's, the, the scale matters here. It's a, it, you wouldn't be able to do things the way he did but we might be seeing governors might be able to yeah 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 definitely governors definitely could and if you had some sort of thing where you 
um, you know, you wind up with states seceding or, or, or territories seceding or whatever, then there's a model out there now for how you can ratchet down and maintain control over your territory while making yourself beloved to your people. This idea of democracy, like really leaning into democracy as a, um, as like a source for autocratic leadership, autocratic populist leadership. I think this is, I'm seeing this not just with him. He's like the most distilled version, but Vivek has been talking like this. There's a number of right-wing congressmen who have been talking kind of along these lines. And I think that, I think we're seeing a signal. It's kind of like a, like a, a, a political rhetorical judo move where instead of doing the democracy, gay, communism, liberalism, whatever, like, that's not productive. Politically, rhetorically, that's not productive. But saying, no, we're the ones who believe in democracy. We're going to redefine democracy. You guys have completely deterritorialized it. You've, you've, you've turned it into this, this like, nonsense, meaningless thing that's just a euphemism for, for like, uh, plutocracy. This is what democracy is. Democracy is when someone who the people love is voted dictator and then wields the power of a dictator on behalf of the people to clear out all the crime and corruption and incentivize growth and, um, and a uh, dependence, reliance, focus on God. This is what democracy is. So if we need, the, the autists have to dial it down because the autists, are, their, their instinct is gonna be, oh, no, 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 democracy's gay. <laughs> Someone's making an entrance. What do you have? What is it? I got mommy's phone. You stole mommy's phone? Hi, buddy. Uncle Cooper says, hey, buddy. What do you want to say to Uncle Cooper? Uncle <laughs> Did you get shot? Hi, Eastwood. <laughs> All right, love you, bub. You going to bed? Okay. I love you, big guy. Have a good sleep. Yeah, Pete, you got to get out. Clear the dog out. Hey, go on, guys. <laughs> Eastwood's abusing the dog on the way out. <laughs> I choose you, big guy. <laughs> oh. All right, what were we saying? Oh, democracy. So, yeah. There's a way that you can make democracy based, rhetorically speaking, and I think that it's um, it's time for us to do our part in uh, in contributing to that effort. Counter signaling democracy. If these if this these are the types of moves these guys are going to make, then counter signaling democracy is counterproductive. No, actually, democracy is good. Democracy is necessary. We must have democracy. We must have the appropriate type of democracy. We must have. The democracy that leads to the election of a guy who can rule as dictator and start righting the wrongs, go to war with the other elites. <clears throat> Anyways, that was about all I had. That's my kind of democracy. Mm -hmm. You guys could vote for me. I'll fix all your yeah. problems. Vote for Cooper. He's going to take a nap. And wake up with a fever. But the memes will be good. Mm-hmm. Ugh, I just got water leaking out of my face. It's pissing me off. <laughs> I 
All right, big guys. Who knows? Who's whose nose is Jewier? Oh, definitely mine. Yeah, it looks like yours definitely is. Yep. You should see my brother's. My brother's got a big old honker. Oh yeah. Me me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I should be on the voice chat and Discord here later this evening. Uh, subscribestar.com slash kingpilled will get you access there. For now, it's only ten bucks. We'll get you in, get you access to everything. Uh, we've got some. Uh, I know we keep saying this, but it's actually true. We have got some have plans in the work. Conversation today about some of the plans that we have. Um, it's taken longer than we expected because we actually had to start making some some other moves in the background to set up the moves that we want to make. But um, if you guys join now, you'll get automatic access in with with uh, grandfathered into everything else. Uh, once we roll the additional features and experiences, and um, I don't know. Uh, other benefits of being a part of the King Pilled Supporting Listeners Group. We've got some cool projects to be rolling out over the next the next year or so. It's gonna mm -hmm. be cool. We're putting it's our money where cool. our mouth is, literally. We're not just we're not just uh, exhorting you guys to do stuff that we wouldn't do. We want to provide you guys some avenues to do some of these things. Welcome to the King Pilled Screwed Up Rebellion, new channel member. We appreciate you, sir. Assuming you're sir, ma'am. Whatever you are, we appreciate you. Oh, I think there was a there was a super chat that I missed, wasn't there? Let's see. Uh, TK two dollars says just got the notification. What I miss? Yeah, the notification thing is is a problem. I don't get notifications from most of the channels that I'm notified to. You could try try noti getting getting like uh, unnotif like uh, unsubscribe and then subscribe again and see if it if it works. Uh, I think we're gonna start streaming onto Rumble here soon. I just need to get that set up. Um, but yeah. YouTube is just got to be what it's got to be for now. Random username, $2. Cooper brings all the super chats to the yard. Well done, Cooper. All one of them? Yeah. <laughs> and Thanks, then dude. $5 from JG says, I implore you to look into Noboa of Ecuador. He seems to be implementing similar policies there. Went to school I've in the heard States, some things about that guy. Oh, well, I am going to Noboa in Ecuador. I'm going to add that to my study, Daniel Noboa. Well, that's very interesting. Another young guy, hmm. 36 years old, born in Miami. Huh. What are you doing with your life, Matt? Ah, man. Okay, chat, is Matt freezing up for you too, or is he just freezing up for me? I don't know what to do with that. So what were you saying? Read the New York Times article. Okay. This is just you. Oh, um, okay. Uh, I said, you, you said, what uh, uh, What am I doing with my life? Because the guy's like the same age as me. He's the president of Ecuador. He's the incumbent president of Ecuador. He's 36. And I'm here live streaming on YouTube to huge emokes. So yep. I guess we, we got to do what we got to do. You could be the, the Caesar of Ecuador. Hmm. I don't think I want to live in Ecuador. Oh, well, okay. Kate says it. you froze too. Oh. Okay, so it's not just me. Ah, you feel vindicated. I do, because Kyle's trying to gaslight me. 
And so is Ryan. <laughs> Speaking of people from the uh, from the the Kingpill Discord, Kyle and Ryan are both. We've got fix my I audio. Am too loud again. <clears throat> I am genuinely proud of the group that we're putting together in there. We've got some. We've got some really really good people. Really smart guys. We keep winding up with programmers somehow. I don't know why that is. We've got a bunch of programmers in there. So if you're a programmer, then uh, uh, you probably want to shine up just because you could be with your people. Um, but <clears throat> it's growing fast. We've got some good people. <coughs> we have a lot of really interesting conversations. The memes are glorious. Matt Greider says, you have to talk of democracy to a population that is indoctrinated into thinking democracy is supreme and the only valid type of government. Exactly. It's just a... a uh, I mean, honestly, when you when you put it that way, it's kind of obvious. It's like, there's no point in counter signaling and trying to overcome all of the the hurdles you'd have to overcome with that. Just figure out what you want and figure out how to frame it to people in their in their own terms. This is why this is why I say a lot of the the right wing political people need to take some sales classes and go work some sales jobs for a while. Figure out how sales and marketing works, and then come back and start talking about how to sell and market your your the product that is your ideal political moves or systems or whatever. <clears throat> hey, buddy. Huh? For do you got Jamie's on? Okay, for a few minutes. <clears throat> they each have one. Yeah. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, I'm going to uh, peace out here. I appreciate you guys showing up. Showing up. I'm live. going to bed. I think I'm going to take tomorrow off, Matt. You should. That sounds good. I don't want to go to work tomorrow. Mm -hmm. I think I'll do that. Good call. Okay. We've got 57 watching, 47 likes. Get those likes up, folks. We need your likes. We crave your likes. Help us with the algorithm. Follow me on Twitter, at RealKingPilled. Follow Cooper, at CooperBrooks. Share the show if you enjoyed it. If you want someone else to, uh, um, if you think someone else would benefit from knowing the background of Bukele or you just want to want to share it, hopefully this gave you kind of a concise, relatively concise breakdown of who he is, what he's about, what he's working on. And yeah, if you uh, if you like to listen to this podcast as a, in podcast form on the audio platforms, then uh, do us a favor and on the audio platform of your choice, give us a five-star review, a five-star rating and a review. That would very much help us. We like to hear what you guys have to say, even if you're just going to make fun of us. We always we always say if you have any uh, any questions or comments or accusations or insinuations or uh, anything, we like to hear from you. So appreciate you guys. We'll catch you next time. <laughs>